cliffcentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and cliffcentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg, and this is The Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. Indeed. Yep. With me today, Lionel Makoko-Tlela. Welcome, Lions. Thank you very much, Gary. Uh, good afternoon to our listeners and yep. our guest. Cool. Today we have the very respected Kaya Sitole. He's a chartered accountant, social activist, and he's going to be discussing current issues affecting South Africans. Uh, you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, it's, got a, it's, it's, it's very intelligent, and uh, it's, it's for you if you want to listen up. Please do. Our email address, lawatcliffcentral.com. Our Facebook page, The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg. And lines, our Twitter handle is... It's at Hertzlaw, H-E-R-T-Z-L-A-W. And he's actually an independent writer. Yeah. Okay. Kai Sitole, he's uh, a chartered accountant, as I said. He's a member of the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants. He's a member of the Accountancy Profession Transformation and Education Committee called ABTEC. He's a Senate member of University of KwaZulu-Natal. He's a social activist, a writer, commentator. Where do you find the time for anything, <laughs> for everything? I try not to sleep. Yeah, it would appear so. Yeah. Okay. There's so much we want to talk to you about. Uh, we'll see how much we can get through. The first thing that I think is on everyone's lips and minds right now is uh, fees for universities or no fees for universities. Yeah. Um, I, I know that you tweeted something very recently. If I may, you said, Blade and is about to screw us all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. T- tell us why you say that. Well, essentially what uh, the government has done is that they've gazetted a blueprint of what they want the solution to look like. But the key features of that particular footprint is that essentially it advocates for SARS to become a collection agent for the banks so that the banks can advance loans to students and they can be collected through SARS. And I have a fundamental objection to that because I don't think that it is the role of SARS to become a collection agent for private enterprise. Absolutely not. Uh, they're using private information confidential information, uh, people's addresses, next of kin, whatever there is that on their database to trace people, they have an unfair advantage. I mean, compare what SARS is sitting with as opposed to your major retailers. So, and I think that's disgraceful that they should be using SARS as a collection agent. I hear you and I agree with that. Yeah, definitely. It is problematic and I think for me, it's a matter of if these people had said we're offering maybe interest-free loans and I could have a justification to say, look, they're engaging in some social compact, but they still have their profit margins built into this. So I'm thinking, well, they must actually take the risk of collections and not outsource it to the state. 80% of university attending households earn less than 600,000 per year, which is less than five fifty grand a month. Yeah. Um, what is all that? What's that figure? Take well, is it, that, there, yeah. there is an ongoing debate. We've got the guy that runs Stats SA, who is obviously a stats guru. Uh, his name is Parili Hotla. So he does the research and tries to work out that, okay, if we decided that everybody uh, below 600,000 rand had to be funded, how many people does that cover? Mm. And if we decided that everybody above 600,000 should pay their own way, how many people does that cover? So that's one of the key um, variables into the question of whether university fees can be made free. So what then happens? 
happens is that you've got the Minister of Higher Education, Bladen Zimande, who comes up with a number that's completely different to Stats SA, but cannot explain to us where he gets his number from. So that's the particular debate around the 600,000. There's a commission going on at the moment. The Fees Commission, yes. are you going to be making representations? or It's a very difficult one. Um, yeah. I don't personally want to make representations simply because our terms of reference are absolutely wrong. What the Fees Commission did is that, unfortunately, it was set up at a time when the President and the Minister of Higher Education were not exactly on speaking terms. Oh. So the President <laughs> didn't actually ask the Minister of Higher Education whether they'd done the work. The work has been done. The questions were answered uh, about five years ago. So they're actually redoing a process that was completed and paid for by the taxpayer five years ago. So their terms of reference are something they are completely object to. They're asking the wrong questions. So I do not, in my own capacity, plan on making representations to them. Last week, Statistician General Dr. Phil Hotler is reported to have said, and I quote, there should be more black students going to university each year, but instead of 200,000, there are only 47,000. He added that of those that failed, they are constipating the system. I don't know if you, I want to get your feel on this. And those that have failed should make way for the guys that that genuinely want to be there. Uh, two parts. Uh, take us through that. Well, essentially, I met with him um, in December last year about that particular um, issue. And the problem that we have is that um, the higher education crisis isn't really a higher education crisis. It's an education crisis at large. So the problem is that we've got a very useless, a very dysfunctional basic education system, and it feeds into the higher education system. So if you've systematically downgraded the basic education system, it means that the feeding into the higher education system is already compromised. So what you'll find is that for a lot of students that do enter the system, then they struggle to get out. So then that creates a constipation within the system where there is a mismatch between the new intake and the people that get out of the system. And that's what's really has crippled and broken the universities. Yeah. You have come out you've come out very strongly and you said, listen guys, there's a way to to raise the shortfall that that there is and you've given options yeah. and I'd, tell us these tell us what you're saying about that. Well what really happened was that uh, sometime last year at the height of the fees crisis, a group of students decided to get together and come up with the model simply because the state hadn't actually come up with anything over a twenty two year period. And in the design of the model was a question of how can we actually make this a possibility. And the key feature of this um, exercise was a realization that the South African context is unique in the, f- in the sense that for a lot of students that enter into university, it's a poor country, South Africa. So a lot of the students that enter university at inception point are not able to afford their own fees in the first place. So the issue here is if you're asking... Um, any group of students, whether they can afford to pay 100000 and into ECT, and over 90% of your audience gives you the wrong answer, it either means that the question is wrong or the question is being asked at the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So when we engage with Stats SA, they simply said, the very interesting thing about the South African situation is that once people graduate, they actually have a 94% absorption rate into employment. And if you went to UCT, then 97% of UCT graduates actually have jobs. So the reality here is that we've all made peace with the fact that it is pointless to ask people when they're 16 or 17 years old whether they can afford university education. However, once people have graduated, then there is an ability to match an ability to pay, a question of payment, and obviously the, the, the question of how much should be paid. So if anything else, the question of paying for university should not be asked at inception level, but at the exit stage. Kai, you've said something now that I find very interesting. I wasn't aware of that. I thought that a lot of people with a university education are still hanging around looking for jobs. You just said, if I, if I got you right, yeah. 90%, 7% of people that graduate get jobs. 97% is the UCT and VITS rate, and overall it's around 94% according to Stats 
say. That's interesting, lines, isn't it? It yeah. is. It yeah. is. Yeah. Well, the scary part of it is that it's like you know things um, that aren't a problem um, don't make it to the news. So no one goes out and says, "Oh, I'm a graduate and I've got a job." Mm. So somebody will come and say, "I'm a graduate but I'm unemployed." So suddenly, if a person escalates that story, then turns it into a crisis, then we're left with the impression that there's a graduate unemployment problem. And South Africa doesn't have a graduate unemployment problem. You might have specific fields which are far more affected because of the nature of the economy that we're in, but there really isn't a graduate unemployment problem, according to Stats SA. Can I talk to you about what you've said? You said to raise the shortfall, we could do something like um, a a corporate tax, wealth tax, windfall tax, the VAT possibly. Uh, how do we how do we get money into government? Yeah. W- w- what's going wrong here? I mean, why can't government pay more for? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the starting point is that I think a lot of people, especially the people that are employed by the government, have a very um, intellectually lazy approach to the question. So they always start off by saying that we cannot afford to pay for everyone. And I always say, well, actually, you're talking nonsense because the framing of the question itself is problematic. If these people went to the state and said, okay, how much can you allocate to higher education? Give us a number, and then we'll decide how many could be covered. Then that's one way to approach it. But what they seem to do is that they seem to go in with the understanding that your answer should be no, but let us try and reach a compromise. And that's not the way these things particularly work. So in our proposed solution, the issue here is that we still believe that actually higher education can be free for society, not for students. And in how we've designed this, we've simply said, look, we've got a university population and the primary beneficiaries of university education in South Africa are the graduates themselves. So if you create something that looks like a pension fund structure and what you are calling the Elisedi Endowment Fund, what you'll find is that you are able to actually collect money into this particular pool of funding that is enough to actually cover all the students that are within the system. So in a rollout process, you start off by saying, how many students really need to be fully funded and if the answer turns out to be 40% it means that your cost base is limited to 40% of the students that really cannot be, cannot afford uh, to pay for university but then you start collecting from the entire uh, uni- university community because even the people that are arguing that they can afford to pay for university actually don't even know how much university costs because mm-hmm. every single student within the system is subsidized so the, this nonsense of saying that the rich can afford university in South Africa is absolutely untested in theory because we don't actually know what universities are in the absence of subsidies. Let's talk about right now. Um, you wrote uh, very recently, I loved it, you said in December 2016, just after all students had vacated campuses, the leadership of higher education uh, undertook two exercises in moral cowardice. Hmm. Firstly, the universities finally announced their 8% increase for 2017 as expected. Then the Minister of Higher Education gazetted his proposed solution to the funding crisis ISFAP, or abbreviation for, as you said, Ikusasa uh, Student Financial Aid Program. Just can you unpack that a little for us? Well, remember, one of the key issues that has been un- un- unresolved throughout time is that everybody's been saying, why are universities so expensive? Mm. And the answer has always been the state cannot tell universities how much to charge because they have something called autonomy. So VITS, uh, UCT used to go 11 12% increases per year. And every year people will say that's problematic. What has then happened is that as a consequence of the student movement having taken to the ground is that the state is now in a position to tell universities that you will increase at 8% and cap it at that. So it appears that the, the theory behind the autonomy be, being re- the reason fees had to be uncontrolled 
enrolled is actually lost traction. So now universities have found a way to manage their budgets within the 8% limit, which is quite strange. Why I think it was an act of moral cowardice is that, you know, they did it in the time when they knew that the students wouldn't be on campus. And it simply deferred the problem from being a 2016 potential solution to a 2017 problem because students are going to return to campus and this 8% increase is still going to be a problem. Yeah. What's the prognosis for us? We've got a tragedy and it would be useful (laughs) if we had a a bigger civil society uh, backing behind this particular problem. Because I think the reality of it is that the people that are on the ground and complaining about the whole feasting are people who quite simply aren't in a position uh, you know, to, f- to find themselves out of the system. Now, the system it- itself operates as a lottery. Mm. I personally got a bursary to study, so I went through, the, went through the system, but that's not a universal thing for everybody else. So we do need to acknowledge that we've got a problem of funding the system at large, and we need to be able to deal with it. And it appears increasingly that the politicians are not the right um, avenue for the solution. Unfortunately, it is. Yeah. Let's move on. We have so many questions we want to fire at you. You're an ardent supporter of the One Million Pads campaign, which is, which in my view is, a, we, we've also dealt with this and we've showcased this before on Cliff Central. It's a fantastic initiative. Talk to us about what all this is about. Well, essentially, I think having been an academic and having adult a lot uh, with students who are really in the margins of economic participation, who show up on campus without the most basic resources, mm-hmm. you tend to become socialized to what the real problems are out there. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the issues that, you know, was brought to my attention um, over the years to say, well, actually, you know, getting to university isn't really the final thing. Once you're in here, there are human needs that we all have, as it were. And one of the key issues is that, you know, for a lot of us, students, uh, female students from very poor backgrounds, this is a thing that they ca- they cannot do without. But unfortunately, they'd have to find a way to pay for it. And if you are poor and you have absolutely no resources, this becomes a real um, issue. It's an affront to human dignity. So I do fully support the campaign. Yeah, the project, as we know, Lion, uh, this is aiming to amass over one million sanitary pads mm-hmm. for, uh, for girls between the ages, of, I think, 12 and 18 in disadvantaged areas mm-hmm. who miss, uh, and I mean, I, I know the, I know the area. I, my, I call it Ekaya for me, which is near Peter Maritzburg. Yeah. I see the little girls there. Um, they miss up to a quarter of their schooling when they're menstruating because they don't have sanitary towels. Yeah. Um, who's ever listening to the show, please, if you can buy a sanitary pad and uh, I think you can just join the uh, initiative, yeah. we'd be most grateful. Lance? Oh, yeah. certainly. Yeah. It's the... Uh, One Million Pads campaign, Uh, please look it up. Uh, It's on the net. Let's talk about what's going on with ABSA. Uh, There's pickets outside, ABSA branches, nationwide protests. ABSA Bank uh, is is alleged to have benefited from apartheid-era bailouts. Mm -hmm. Um, You have strong views on this one. Um, Is there merit in this? Um, There are two parts to it. Uh, Legally, probably not, uh, because, you know, the way our laws have been written, I can personally myself find a way to say legally that there's nothing to be done. For me, the APSA issue is more a question of social justice. And what you're really trying to unpack here is the fact that, you know, the whole reconciliation compact that South Africans signed up for appears to have been a one-sided transaction where the reconciliation was imposed on the black people. And what you are finding is that a lot of them are now saying, actually, 
what exactly was the concession that, you know, white society made in relation to this. So for me, the APSA question is more an issue of social issues to say, well, let's face it. If you have all these entities that obviously thrived under that particular government, they couldn't have done it in an open market because the reality is that the market wasn't open. It was completely manipulated and contrived. And what I was hoping would happen is that, you know, institutions like APSA would view this as an invitation to actually have open and frank conversations to say, look, actually, this is how the apartheid economic architecture was created. We sort of participated in this particular way, and this is how we sort of think that things should have been done. So you want to ventilate and open up those conversations and so that people have a much more holistic understanding of how it is that we ended up where we are. Because what I think is that increasingly in the public discourse and the public engagement, it's really driven by ignorance and people who operate in social vacuums who don't actually understand how everything that we used to be influences everything that we are today. So for me, it's not about the money. It's really the social justice. Maybe explain the facts to those who may not know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, the Reserve Bank well, bailed out. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Reserve Bank started bailing out um, a, a, a group of Afrikaans banks. Um, they were sort of consolidated under the name Bank Orp. So the first bailout happened in 1985. They asked for 300 million because they said, look, the bank is falling apart. But remember, again, the context is important because the year before you'd had the Rubicon speech. So it was actually, uh, you know, the, 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 the apartheid government that actually created a financial crisis. The banks had a liquidity problem and then they said, we need to be rescued. So they get given 300 million rand. And then six years later, it turns out they still don't know how to run a bank. So then they come back in 19 and they're like, well, it looks like we need a billion and a half now. So they were given that particular amount. And then it sort of starts getting a bit murky because now we can't figure out whether they paid the money or when they paid the money. So they insist that there was a repayment, but no one can tell us when. And the 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 transaction itself was so contrived, it simply took money from the state and passed it on to this particular entity in, in, in terms that only favor this particular entity. The reason why it becomes a social issue is that literally the Reserve Bank t- took state funds and says we're going to bail out a private enterprise. Now the reasons behind that is that a lot of the people that were in influential positions at that point in time were either related to each other or were members of the Buddha Bond. So it was a completely tainted transaction whichever way you look at it. The various reports that have been done all point to the same thing that you cannot dispute the illegality of it. The problem has always been should there be a recovery and that's really where we've been stuck for over 20 years. There's a court application on right now compelling, I think, the Minister of Finance to pay back the money kind of thing. I I, I think, yeah. yeah, I read about that. I think it's a frivolous court application because this is... Who brought this application? I believe it's the BLF. I believe it's the BLF. Um, Sorry, is this the EFF that... Backs the, the BLF no, no, or no, 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 no. No. Uh, the BLF appears to be an independent entity run yeah. by a guy called Andilem Gutama. So yeah. again for them I think they're probably pushing the awareness rather than the funding because really yeah. the money is going to be very difficult to recover, but the issues of social justice need to be um debated. I think I have a problem with Maria Ramos's approach to the matter because she insists that the assets are acquired at fair value, which for me is quite disturbing for a person who runs a bank to have such a limited understanding of what makes up a fair value because this couldn't have been done at fair value. The transaction was highly manipulated. There's some uh, the public, the new public protector after Twilly has uh, come out with some provisional report which is based on 
some report that they say comes from spies, yeah. ex-spies and all the rest, in which it was leaked, in yeah. which he says, you know, there's, there's some, they, they should pay back. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I, it's quite interesting. I was yeah. actually in London last week trying to track down the spy. Uh, okay. um, well, that report, yeah. it, again, you see, the problem with leaking things is that we can't officially talk about it because it's not in the public domain, yes. but the report has been leaked. And the essence of the report is to simply say, well, actually, um, the money now needs to be recovered. Now, the problem with saying that the money needs to be recovered is that the person to whom you're issuing that instruction is the same government that somewhere along the line decided not to recover the money. So it'll be very interesting for them now to then decide that the money needs to be repaid because then our next question will be, so why didn't you do this back in 1997 or whenever it was? Mm-hmm. The spy report was written primarily by a guy called Michael Oatley. He is now primarily based in London and yeah, in my interactions with him last week, he said he's actually still under a non-disclosure agreement with the South African government, so it's not allowed to say anything. Okay. Cool. Um, we'll, we'll keep our eyes and ears peeled, as they say. We'll wait for the outcome of this one. Yeah. Uh, let's talk of something you retweeted about. Uh, someone said, uh, if we lay fraud charges against Shaka's Sisulu, Sisulu and the uh, GM, they will spill the beans and tell us who in the highest office orchestrated this. This is all about the ANC's war room. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, what's going on? I, I find the concept of a war room being used by the ANC quite ironic because the most famous war room that we've ever had was the one that Winston Churchill had back in the, at the end of the war mm. where Jan Smart sat in there. Um, I think this one is literally what happens when our politicians get very clumsy. The ANC has got particular problems and some of most of them are actually PR related. So if you look at this story behind the war room and Shagasisulu, it's a matter of, yeah, Perhaps if the party did a better job of actually governing, they wouldn't need to resort to these particular things. And this is, I think, is going to be an ongoing problem. And people who've interacted with Shaga, I've also had some minor interactions with him. You sort of get the impression that this is the type of thing that he would do. Yeah. yeah. How's this going to play out, do you think? Oh, no, no. They it's will, just they will kill it. it. It'll yeah, die. It'll die. die. Yeah. I think right now, yeah. again, they're getting the PR game completely wrong because now the GM of the ANC is now suing the person who actually raised the story. Yeah. And he just came up with a number to say, if you pay me half a million rand, then uh, my injuries will be healed, <laughs> which just doesn't make sense. Why you'd want to drag this thing out into the public domain? I've got the same reservations about the president's reaction to the state capture report because if nothing else, him dragging it through the judicial, judicial review process simply means that it will become, it will remain in the public consciousness way deep into uh, the 2019 year, which is mm. not in the benefit of the ANC. I just want to mention, forgive me, uh, the previous uh, story we were touching on APSA, mm. uh, our, f- our uh, finance minister said very recently, I think it in an affidavit, he said the court application by the firebrand leader of BLF yeah. is scandalous, vexatious, and irrelevant. And APSA has said the report, the preliminary report, I think they're referring to um, the provisional one, the provisional one mm. contains several factual and legal inaccuracies. So oh. I think I, I need to just place that on record. It's as quite well. ironic because the person who drew up the report was Tulima Donsela, and this is the first time where organs of state and corporate South Africa have come and said that report is rubbish. Let's end off by a lovely tweet that you said. You said, it's not the color of their skin that makes life harder for black people, it's racism. Mm. 
And that is so touching and so true, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, especially in the context of the country that we live in, I do think that we have a lot of scars that have not been well dealt with. And um, increasingly, they are becoming a problem for us because I think people on the ground who remain victims of this unjust society are now rebelling against the society, and we still don't have a plan on how to deal with it. Yeah, it's not the color of their skin that makes life harder for black people, it's racism. Mm. We've got to clear, get, get that out the way yeah, and, and live together. It, yeah. It's an issue of psychology more than anything else. I think, you know, a lot of people have an inherit, inherited inferiority complex. They tend to be black. And a lot of people have got um, this superiority complex that they were born into and they happen to be white. And that meeting of the minds has not happened in this country. And in the absence of that, yeah, there's going to be a disaster. No, we, we we always pull through. We the Rainbow Nation. Uh, we pray for that. We used to be a Rainbow Nation. Are rainbow. we no longer? Well, it misses one yeah. fundamental color, doesn't it? The rainbow. There is no black in the rainbow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sad, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, cool. It's been so interesting. Before we let you say goodbye and let you go, anything you want to add? <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. And yeah. yeah, I don't know how long I'll be alive for if I keep talking random things. <laughs> Let's but give yeah. your, please, your Twitter handle and your Facebook page. <laughs> Everyone wants to follow you. Yeah. You've got a massive following on Twitter, I believe. A few people, a few yeah. people. People um, like what you say, <laughs> yeah. obviously. Um, on Twitter, my handle is at Koruskakaya, which is C O R U S C A. K-H-A-Y-A And on Facebook It's just Kaya Esitole Yeah A Karuska is a gem Yeah, yeah. I actually, So maybe you are a gem I, <laughs> I hope so <laughs> Just be nice to us white people And uh, it'll, we'll all be good <laughs> No No We're all South Africans There's no Absolutely. black and white anymore Absolutely right? Cool It's been a thank pleasure you. Lionel yeah. Pleasure Thank you so thank much you. for this Cool Thanks guys cool. Cliffcentral.com